Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 137 of the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show that's dedicated to changing the way that the military-affiliated population thinks and talks about veteran mental health. On today's show, I have a conversation with combat veteran and best-selling author Carl Melantis. His book, Matterhorn, was described by Sebastian Younger as one of the most profound and devastating novels ever to come out of Vietnam or any war. His companion book, What It Is Like to Go to War, is his personal look at what war experience is like. I think just for therapists out there that you are no less effective because you don't understand, quote unquote, what it's like to be in combat. Nobody understands what it's like to be in combat except the one guy who's talking to you. I mean, that the people who have been there understand it, but that's very, very few people. What they're looking for is someone to listen to them, someone who's safe to talk to, someone who reaches them as an individual. That has nothing to do with combat. I mean, what, what therapists give to everybody, but certainly to veterans, is that ability to just sort of unburden your soul and then have somebody who isn't, doesn't have your particular, you know, peccadillos and your rationalities uh, point out paths to you that you might not have thought of. And, uh, or maybe, you know, maybe your thinking's just a little confused on this issue. And that doesn't take any, any understanding of combat. It goes two ways. I mean, veterans, combat veterans, and believe me, I'm one of them, have a kind of a disdain for people that haven't been there. That gets in your way, too. I mean, if you want to rejoin society... You got to get off of that high horse. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, we've had a number of guests on the show who are veterans themselves talking about their own mental health journey and talking about how, um, how things have changed in their post-military life. Uh, and, and that's definitely my guest today who, who may not need much of an introduction. Um, but still more people might not know as, um, as vocal he is, as he is about veteran mental health and, and family mental health and things like that. So my guest today is best-selling author Carl Marlantis. Carl, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Um, I definitely appreciate um, I, I reached out. I actually had Dr. Larry Decker on the show back in episode 99, and, and he suggested that, uh, that we get together and talk because, um, as I mentioned, you're a very – outspoken advocate for mental health, wellness, therapy, and things like that. And definitely like to get into that, but give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah. First of all, I want to say Larry Decker was my VA therapist, and uh, he pulled me out of a, a real hole. So I I have nothing but great admiration for him. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I was a, I was a Marine. I, I grew up in a little logging town in Oregon, and uh, you know, all the guys on the football team went someplace called San Diego and came back with suntans, which we never saw, and and were about four inches wider in the shoulders and swaggered up and down Main Street of town. And like most eighteen-year-olds, I said, "Well, I want some of that," you know. And uh, and there was patriotism. There was a draft. All of those factors. I joined the Marine Corps uh, about a year after I left high school, and I got into a program the Marines had called Platoon Leaders Class, where you go through boot camp in the summers, and uh, and then you don't get paid or anything, but you don't have to do march around with ROTC or NROTC and get a commission upon graduation. And uh, I ended up being a platoon commander, infantry platoon commander in Vietnam and uh, served one tour there and uh, came back, finished up at the Pentagon and, and then went back to college. And so, and that was, um, you definitely hear we're talking about, you know, um, so when were you, um, when were you in Vietnam? I was there in 68 and 69. I, I served right where the Laotian border meets the then demilitarized zone. We were way up in the mountains, probably 4,000 foot. And it was cold up there. I mean, that was one thing I never expected was to be freezing in Vietnam. But when you get wet and it's you know about 40, you, you get cold, 45 degrees. Uh, we suffered with hypothermia, which is like, whoa, how is that possible? Um, in the jungle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we were high. And, uh, uh, you know, and we never, I never saw a, a friendly village. I never saw a friendly Vietnamese. I mean, it was, uh, uh, in many ways, I was very grateful because we had the Marines just, uh, I was with the 4th Marine Regiment and we fought the 320th uh, Steel Division, which was a very fine North Vietnamese army unit, but it was straight, I mean, World War II Marines against uh, North Vietnamese infantry regulars. And uh, I didn't have any moral dilemmas like, you know, is the little girl coming toward us with the basket? Does she have a hand grenade in it or, or an apple? Uh, I, I was grateful. There were, you know, we had more casualties up there, but way less of that moral trauma that uh, is so difficult in the wars we're fighting today. You know, and, and that is, um, that's an important distinction, right? You know, not that there was not uh, moral decisions that were made and, and the challenges um, that you might have had, but, um, you know, the rules were, were much clearer, right? You're on a two-way firing range. Um, and didn't have the ambiguity of maybe urban combat and, and, you know, civilian casualties and rules of engagement and things like that. Totally. I mean, it, it, it was absolutely, if, if you could identify it as someone that wasn't y your side, you could shoot. And, uh, and in many ways, uh, one of the things I get on my political high horse about is, is that if, if you can't send a military organization into an environment where they can't act like a military organization, then maybe you ought to be thinking about sending in the State Department or the police force or something like that. We've been misusing our warriors who, uh, you know, they're, they're young, they're 19, right? I mean, putting them in these moral dilemmas where they're trying to figure out whether to pull the trigger or not. And then with the fear of getting court-martialed, if they make a mistake, I'm just going like, you've got the wrong people there. You know, I mean, that's what, that's where I come down, uh, really strongly. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's politics, but that's where I've been. And, and because of my experience in Vietnam and talking to vets coming back from places like Iraq, Afghanistan, where, you know, they're always in a quandary. Why, why do we put them in that situation? You know that's uh, that's entirely accurate, especially as you're talking about um, uh, the age. Um, my father was uh, was a Vietnam veteran. Um, sixty seven, sixty eight was when he was there, and, and uh, three of his brothers, two brothers and a brother in law, were there between sixty eight, sixty nine, and seventy. And um, and so um, one time, my father and I were having a conversation, and something about the differences between when I deployed to Iraq for the first time, because I had been in the army since '92, and of course, the first half of my career was peacetime army. Mm -hmm. And um, and my father had said, you know, for for him, he went to war with an 18 year old brain, where I went to war with a 32 year old brain, and and, and there was a difference. Oh yes, oh yes, 
And and you want you want your 32, 35, 40 year old brains in, in your special forces organization. And you want them in these incredibly difficult, ambiguous situations. But uh, your your 19 year olds, those are the ones you say, take the hill. And whoa, that's that's who that's who you want. I don't want a 40 year old in my platoon. If I have to be in that kind of combat, they're going to be saying, wait a second, Lieutenant, where's the Air Force? You know, I mean, uh, but so, again, it's that thing about putting the right people with at the right age and at the right place. And I don't think we do a lot of thinking about that. No, you're entirely right. And I think back to um, as I was a platoon sergeant in Afghanistan at that point, I wasn't serving with the, the special forces yet. Um, and, uh, and, and it was only myself and one of my squad leaders, um, had been in the army before nine 11, of course, mm-hmm. my platoon leader, um, and all of my, I had a platoon of, uh, 65, 70 troops and, uh, all of them were, you know, <laughs> 30 and below my, my senior guys were, were just getting into, to being 30 years old. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, and, and it is, uh, you know, war is a young man's game. Um, and then you as a young man, um, come back to the U S and, and are still a young man, but you're a young man who has seen the jungles of Vietnam, the mountains of Vietnam and combat. Um, and, and of course we've heard a lot. Of it. I heard a lot about it from my father. I actually first remember, uh, in the mid eighties, um, uh, visiting the traveling wall and my father and my uncle having a, really the first time that they had a welcome home. Um, but I'd like to hear uh, from your standpoint what it was like for you to return from Vietnam. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I'm still mad about it. Sure, <laughs> I am. I um, first of all, we had as a culture, we we have we still have a very low understanding of what it's like to try and reintegrate people back into the community. Our quote more primitive end quote cultures were way more adept at that. Um, we we lost that ritual, uh, uh, you know, the community welcoming sort of forms that you know sweat lodges, dances, uh, all these things that we we lost. Uh, when I came back, I was on an airplane with a bunch of Marines. I still had a year of service to do because I, I I had a three year commitment because I was an officer. Literally, we landed at El Toro Marine Base and. Uh, 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 Southern California, and uh, got off the plane, and there were cardboard, uh, there were uh, card tables all down the runway, and the guys lined up and went from card table to card table, and the last card table, they asked uh, the kid if he wanted to have uh, an air ticket to his home of record or the cash, and they were out of the Marine Corps, two days out of the jungle. And I mean, I know they all took the cash and went to the bars in San Diego, and as I tell people, I said half of them are probably still there. But uh, it was a terrible understanding of how to reintegrate people back in. And then we were, you know, we were told not to wear our uniforms. We could only travel at two in the morning because they didn't, civilians were getting upset because the military was in the airports. And, you know, I had people throw things at me and a lot of my friends did, you know, like they'd be hitchhiking and a car would stop. One of my friends' car stopped and the kids got out and started throwing beer cans at him. And... Uh, this is our welcome home. Uh, I wrote about it and what it's like. I actually did get spit on by a, a woman in a train, uh, but it was, I don't think that was that common. That was, uh, but it became a metaphor. It became a metaphor for how we were treated. Um, and uh, I think that, 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 that coming home probably traumatized me as much as as a war experience i mean it's hard to say how to get, you know it's hard to compare traumas but i expected to sort of come home and have people love me and be happy about me coming home and sure my mom and dad were <laughs> but uh no one else came to the airport i mean it was really it was really something uh to come back to that kind of not just indifference i think a lot of the current veterans face indifference or they face this false heroism thing, which I think embarrasses most of us. It's, you know, oh, wow, you know, uh, you're our you're brave warrior. And listen, everybody knows 90% of the military are people that do support services. Very, very vital, absolutely necessary, but they're, they're not out there, you know, being the infantry. And uh, 
anyway, it, 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 coming back to, to that kind of uh, being blamed for the foreign policy of the United States when you're, you know, 18 to 22 years old, is, and <laughs> it really was unfair. Um, in many ways, we just hid. I mean, I grew my hair long and I went back to college and I would never tell anybody I was in the war because it would just, it would just be like, you know, I don't know, part of my language, you know, laying a turd on the dinner table. I mean, it was just, you couldn't do it. And my favorite story of that is that I had a, a we had really close friends that my wife, my first wife and had been in college with this other woman. And so they knew each other from college and uh, we were both ma- married couple, and our kids about the same age. And Barry is the man's name. He and I coached the uh, soccer team together, and and uh, we'd pick the kids up after school. We'd switch off. We'd have overnights. And after about six or eight years, the wives were talking and found out that Barry and I were both Marines in Vietnam. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's that's how that's how underground the Vietnam veterans went because of that horrible reception. Now, the country has learned from that. And uh, I've had many, many people come up to me and say, I don't know what was going on. Why did we behave that way, non-veterans? We we went kind of cuckoo. And and the country did. And it was just casting their darkness onto these young kids. You know, I would never shoot anybody. I would never kill anybody. I would never do any of those horrible things. Yeah, well, I think you would. But... You want to kid yourself. So then what you say, well, you would do that. You did that. And uh, that's just the way humans are. And and we're better now. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like I said, you're either facing indifference uh, or you're facing, I think, almost, a, 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 I don't know what the word is, a, a, you know, treating people like heroes when it's kind of embarrassing. You know? No, you're, you're exactly right. And, and the idea of um, the homecoming being more traumatic than, than sometimes the actual combat. And, and um, as a clinical mental health professional, as a therapist now, um, I am working with Vietnam veterans. And here we are, you know, 50 years uh, down the line. Um, and that is a theme that I am hearing um, from the veterans that I'm working with, um, you know, so, so to speak, we dealt with the Vietnam stuff. Um, but whether or not they actually dealt with how they had to come back and exactly what you're talking about, um, was they, they just went underground and they blended back into, so they, they didn't start to emerge again until, you know, the mid eighties. And that's 15, almost 20 years after, um, the, after the, the trauma, so to speak. Um, and if we're needing to deal with these issues, you know, in the immediate aftermath, you're, you know, this is 15, 20 years that um, Vietnam has been lingering, but also, and I think Dr. Ed Tick talked about, it's a national moral injury of, of how veterans were treated when they came back. And then you talk about now, and this is something that I, I often draw the parallels from my standpoint as a combat veteran, a lot of the veterans I work with is, um, yes, there is that hero worship piece, right? We're treated like, uh, you know, the next greatest generation and, you know, there's parades and stuff like that. Um, you know, but there's also a, a sense of, as you said, indifference and, you know, who really cares and, um, and just sort of being ignored a lot like Korean war veterans. Um, and then there's an undercurrent, especially with veterans that are trying to go back to the workforce that still get a little bit of that resentment. Like we love veterans from afar. If they're in the movie theaters or Memorial Day or Veterans Day or right. they're up at the front of the plane. But when I actually have a veteran sitting next to me, there's something a little different about that. And, and there's still a little bit of hesitation. And so it's sort of the veterans today get a mix of all three of those. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think that. I get a lot of, I know what for better word, civilians, people that were, were not in the military, which is, of course, the vast majority of people, they're, they're a little afraid to approach veterans. And, how well, you know, they don't want to sort of set him off, you know, I mean, he's going to go postal. Or, I mean, there's this sort of mythology about veterans being on hair triggers. And, and well, you know, there's there's a bit of, of truth to that. But basically, you know, nobody's nobody's going to explode or go crazy on you. They're, they're, they may feel uncomfortable. Well, what do I do? How do I approach a veteran? I said, the first thing you do is you stop treating them as a class and start treating them as individuals. See, it's like, oh, veterans. That's just that that's that there's there's no personal connection there. You know, like, thank you for your service. Why is that so hollow? 
because you're not actually thanking that person for anything. You're just doing a, a general sort of like, oh, we're, we're, we're thanking veterans for their service. As I say to people, I say, you've got to have a little courage, but if you got the kid in the airport, don't just say thank you for your service. Sit down next to him and say, where were you? Um, oh, what unit were you in? Were you Which service were you in? Uh, what did you eat for breakfast? I mean, you're, there are these questions that you can ask a veteran that indicates that you're actually interested in them as a person. And believe me, the veterans, most of them will respond. And yes, you've got to accept that sometimes the veterans, I don't want to talk about it, get out of my face. Okay. And if it's somebody you know and love, you just got to go back at them and just gird up. But you don't, you just have to learn how to sort of ease in. Because veterans don't know who you are. They're, they're, even if they've known you all their lives, they don't know how you're going to react. I mean, we do horrible things. I mean, you know, we not just kill people, but I mean, I've right in my book. I mean, I, I once was involved in just not taking any prisoners because we just we just lost our temper, and it's hard to explain to somebody. Well, I lost my temper. What? And then you wouldn't take prisoners because of that? You're horrible. Well, you had to be there. You know that kind of. You know, and uh, so you have to feel safe. Well, how do you get that way? How do you get the veteran to feel safe? Well, you start talking to them as a person and they start telling you about what they had for breakfast and how hot it was and, you know, what they missed about home. And then then pretty soon, you know, after a while, they'll be talking about the war. I mean, I think most of us want to talk about it. We want to get back into the community. We want to be part of it again. Like I say, you don't want to go to when you go to work and or try to get a job. Suddenly, it's no longer thank you for your service. It's like, oh, you're different than I am. Uh, you know, whoa, whoa. It, it didn't used to be that way because, well, when we when we went to war, when we were all wearing moccasins, uh, it was the hunters that went to war, and so the rest of the people didn't have any any protein. So everybody went to war. I mean, it was really different, but it's not the way it is today. And uh, my analogy for that, which I. I think is also at the root of this problem of reintegration is this unconscious attitude. Uh, and it is unconscious on the part of the non uh, veterans. It's this, we have this rifle. Okay. And a rifle is made by scientists who have been trained by second grade school teachers to teach them their arithmetic. And it's been financed by bankers and the bankers have been fed by farmers who've grown crops and, and, Everybody pays taxes that might, that buys this weapon. So there's this huge interrelated chain that builds this weapon. And at the end of this very long chain, some 19-year-old pulls the trigger. And then we say, he did the killing. No, no, we did the killing. But we don't guess, people don't want to accept that. He did the killing. And until the country begins to take responsibility for the fact that that kid didn't have that weapon without all these other people doing their part, including voting for the people that voted to go to war, or here's another political statement, or failed to vote to go to war, our Congress's dereliction of duty, um, until that unconscious attitude is changed, you're going to have problems with everybody reintegrating because he didn't just do the killing. Yeah, he did part of the killing, and so did you. You know that's a uh, that's an interesting concept. As I'm as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking of uh, a Dave Grossman and his books on killing and on war, and and how the distance between um, the individual doing the killing, quote unquote, um, and and the actual killing that's being done, um, the farther back you get, the less of an impact it has. And in the example that he uses is, you know, the the individual who conducts hand to hand combat, of course, has has the full experience. Um, but the person launching Tomahawk missiles off of the, the ship in the Gulf, um, it's, it's almost, you know, academic to them in many ways. Right. It's um, like they pushed the button and went to lunch. Right. And, and then I'm in the, and, but you're talking about, and not even farther back than that, right? Farther back than the guy who's pushing the button, but the one who made the button and the, the, the shipbuilder exactly. and, and, and the one who paid their taxes. I mean, yeah. I mean, nobody's clean here. All right. Nobody's clean. And that's what we don't understand. And and so I think there there definitely is this othering of veterans, as you said. It's you know stop treating us like a class because we wouldn't say, you know, uh, what is it like to grow up in the South Side of Chicago, right? Because I mean, not to treat that individual as a as a separate class. And you know, I'm I'm from St. Louis, East St. Louis. Actually, I just just read there was a, a tragic uh, a, a great young kid that was uh, 
of football prospects as an eighth grader, um, you know, mm. tragically died in East St. Louis, right? So there's, there's challenges, um, you know, on the home front, but, uh, but we don't treat people on the home front in as this separate class. Oh. But then you talk about, you know, this idea of just talk to a veteran. This was actually, I had, it was on another show that a, a friend of mine asked this question. He was a non-veteran. Actually, he's an immigrant. He was Canadian and naturalized citizen. And he said, well, what do we say if we don't say thank you for your service? And I say, you know, listen to the story. And that's what you're talking about is there's this paradox of the veteran story. We want to be able to tell what happened to us and we don't know how to do it. And in many ways, um, you know, it, you almost can't pull it out of us. Um, but I get the sense that that's where Matterhorn came from. And I, and I heard one time that this is a book, you know, of course it took you 30 years to write it, but it wasn't a book that would have been published in the eighties or maybe even the nineties that it was a book whose time finally came, um, to look back at Vietnam in the early two thousands and, and so on. Yeah, no, that's right. The, the, uh, uh I wrote that Matterhorn, the, the first draft of Matterhorn was done in the seventies and no one would touch it. I couldn't get a single person to even read it. I'd get letters from agents or publishers in New York saying, oh, yeah, we lost that war. No one wants to hear about it. We couldn't sell this book to save our souls. And it took 30 years, 35 years before it got published. And I think a lot of it was because, um, what we were involved w- with in Afghanistan in particular, but Iraq looked pretty seriously close to it. It was eerily similar. I mean, rules of engagement, they could run across the border. We couldn't shoot them. We were supporting corrupt government. Uh, uh, no one understood what was going on. The, the rest of the country didn't care. Uh, the Taliban wasn't, you know, storming the beaches of Santa Monica. I mean, you know, it's pretty hard to tell a 19-year-old he's defending his family when his family's out shopping. Uh, so it, it, all of that was eerily similar to the Vietnam situation. Vietnam was the first attempt at, quote, nation building, end quote. And uh, because of that, I think that Matterhorn finally, its time came. And um, and also this idea of telling your story. I, I've told this story before, but since it's true, I have to tell it again. But the... I was still in the Marine Corps, and I was at the headquarters Marine Corps. I was actually stationed at the Pentagon, and I had to carry some, you know, classified material over to the White House. And so I'm in my full uniform, and I'd been back maybe three or four months, and I'm walking down, I don't know, right next to the White House, and uh, a bunch of students are on the other side of the street from me, and they're chanting. Uh, uh, slogans and they're waving North Vietnamese flags and Viet Cong flags and they're, you know, calling me names, giving me the finger, shouting, you know, bad things at me. I'm in my uniform on one side of the street. They're all on the other side of the street and, you know, they're calling, calling my friends baby killers and my all the guys I served with were like 18 and 19. The average age in my platoon was 18 and 10 months. So, they were babies compared to those college students. And I and I had this horrible feel. I, I wasn't angry. I was sad. I, I knew I, if I stepped off the sidewalk to go even talk to these people, it would be, you know, in the newspapers, Marine attacks students. You know, I mean, I just couldn't do anything. And no one was helping me. All the civilians were walking by with their heads down. I couldn't talk to them. And I just I just said, you don't know who we are. You have no idea who you're talking about. You just see somebody in a uniform. You don't know who we are. And I wanted to somehow tell our story. I mean, what is it like to be 18 and 19 and trying to grow up in a war over in some place called Vietnam? And so Matterhorn was a, about trying to tell our story. And that's really what it is. I mean, it's about a bunch of kids in the jungle is what it's about. <laughs> see, and that's a, and, and as you bring that out, it, it brings to mind is, um, you know, in order to tell a story, you know, there's at least two people in that exchange, the one that's actually telling the story and then the audience that's receiving it. Um, and that's even more frustration when you want to tell the story, you have the ability to tell the story. Um, but yet there is no audience for it. Um, it, it might make you feel like the story that you have isn't worth telling. Well, yeah. I mean, there were many times that, that I, I mean, cause I got, I mean, hundred rejection letters. I mean, it was, and I would literally sometimes go down to a bookstore, you know, 
in the nighttime and and look at books and pr- pull them off the shelf and 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 say well, you know I can write as well as these guys I, I why can't I get published I mean I was I, am I crazy am I crazy to keep trying to do this because you really are crazy as they say if you keep doing the same thing with 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 the same bad result I mean it's time to change but I was pretty stubborn and so I didn't <laughs> 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 that's the marine in you perhaps yeah i know that's right yeah and and so and and as this was going on in the 70s with with the first draft of matterhorn and as you're you're you know shopping it around for 30 years um it, you also emerge into um actually getting into therapy and and start addressing some of these issues I mean, you've been very vocal about that you know perhaps at this point not only is matterhorn giving an opportunity to look at maybe the wars of today through the lens of, of the past, but also um, giving you an opportunity to be vocal about your opinions about therapy and counseling and the benefit yeah. to, to uh, combat veterans, especially, but, uh, but anybody. Totally. I, um, I love to tell the story of how I got into it. I had never heard of post-traumatic stress, never heard of it. I mean, I'm a fairly educated guy. But uh, just wasn't wasn't part of the zeitgeist in the '80s and even the '90s, and uh, and I was doing some really weird behavior. I mean, you know, I mean, I I mean, I bumped my head against the cabinets in the kitchen, and I took the cabinets out with my fists, which, you know, shattered the dishes. They were on the floor. You think the family doesn't get scared? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I would I would I'd be up in the middle of the night. There'd be a noise. I'd be out on the street, stark ass naked. You know, before I'd come to my senses, what are you doing out here, Marlanis? This is really weird. And so my first wife, who uh, she and I are great friends now, we didn't know what hit us. That was what the problem was. No education. Um, she was. She saw something for a free counseling session at the local school at, in the cafeteria, a bunch of local counselors, you know, looking for work probably, uh, for job stress. And she said, you're under a lot of job stress. I mean, you're really behaving weird. And uh, yeah, I guess so. So I went down there and I'm sitting there, a bunch of, you know, people in the, in the school cafeteria. And I, finally my turn comes up and I sit down at the, at the table with this guy and he's, he starts asking me some questions. And uh, I start telling him about some of these weird behaviors that I just mentioned to you. And he looks at me and he says, were you ever in a war? And when he said that, I burst into tears. I mean, I, I mean, I, I didn't know what hit me. I mean, I'm talking about snot running out of my nose, bawling. I mean, everybody in that school cafeteria was looking at me because I was just bawling out loud. I mean, out of control for 10 minutes. Finally, he, you know, I start to get back to, and, and he, he, he looks at me and he writes on the back of a card. He says, he, and this is where I got, he says, Larry Decker, and he says, here's where he is. He was at a Veterans Outreach Center in, in Santa Barbara. He said, I'm going to call him on the phone, and you're going to go see him now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not this afternoon. I'm calling him now, and you're walking down to see him, and uh, you better show up. You have something called post-traumatic stress disorder. Have you ever heard of it? No. Well, you got it. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm stumbling down the street literally with this card in my hand, I walk into the vet center, and uh, Larry had a had a client at the, right at that time, and he came out and he said, "I'll see you in about twenty minutes," and that started me on therapy, and it basically turned my life around because I was a complete wreck. And this was uh, the the eighties, late eighties, nineties. No, it was the nineties. Nineties, right? You yeah. know, twenty five years after, um, you know, Vietnam, yeah. um, in and just that question is, were you ever? Um, you know, triggered that. And that's a long time to carry around this burden. Um, and, and, and I'm starting to see some veterans. I'm seeing many veterans, um, you know, post 9-11 veterans now. Um, but then there may still be some veterans. Number one, we're about 20 years away, um, from the first traumatic events of, of Afghanistan, really. Um, yes. and so, um, this, this message of, you know, don't wait 25 years. Um, to, to get in to see somebody to deal with this stuff because war was a part of your life. Yeah. Well, I advocate, and I really believe this, that, that the Navy and Army Medical Corps ought to beef up its psychiatrists or psychologists. And uh, we need to make counseling mandatory because, as, as you well know, 
there's a stigma. It's like, oh, you know, he's got trouble with the war. He's shaky, well, you know, flaky, shaky, all those words. Uh, but if you have to go, it's like it's time for your checkup. It's like, well, you, you have your annual checkup, right? Well, you have your whatever six-month checkup with the shrink. The Israeli army it, it, it has, has the battalion surgeon and the battalion psychiatrist. And, and if you're feeling like, you know, you got the flu, well, then you go to the surgeon. If you're feeling like, you know, bad because your girlfriend just dumped you, then you go see the psychologist. They, it's really different. And if everybody had to do it, I think we'd catch a lot of this stuff early. Now, I don't think it's the military's job to cure us from post-traumatic stress because those people have a very different job. They're, they're like the trainers on a professional football team. They're going to pump you full of, you know, cortisol and get you, or whatever it is, cortisol, and get you back on the field. That's their job, to get you stable and back on the field. But still, they would start to catch this stuff. And when you get out of the military, that's when you have to start trying to heal it and change it. And, you know, you can do a lot of it in the military, but I think the burden still has to be on the civilian side. Veterans Administration, local state veteran, uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, churches, you know, there's a lot of places that this can take place. So I don't, don't want to lay it on the military. I had this wonderful experience. I was at Quantico. And uh, talking about stuff like this and to the staff at the basic school and this colonel comes up to me afterwards and he's just classic Marine colonel, you know, high and tight, you know, it built like a tank and, and he's, he's sputtering. He's literally sputtering. He's, we got, we've got six programs to, to, to deal with all this stuff you're talking about. And he says, I, I, I don't know if it's working or not. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a Marine. <laughs> And I just went, yeah, this is the wrong guy, you know. That, this is that, that, so we got to, again, it's, this, it's way back at the policy level. Are you sending the right kind of person for the right kind of job? You know, why are you assigning Marines to become, you know, psychiatrists? I mean, sorry, these are not the guys you want, you know. So it, it's, it's, uh, it goes back to the politicians, ultimately, the leadership of the country. That's where we have to make these policy decisions right to get the rest of it right. So everybody wants to focus on the tail end. I keep saying you got to focus on the front end. No, you're you're entirely accurate, and it's um, uh, definitely in. And perhaps things have changed, or I have seen things change, and and even since I was in, and they started pushing, um, you know, behavioral health specialists down to the the unit level, the battalion and, and brigade level, um, and and still there is this, um, you know, the old man can stand up in front and say, "Hey, go see Doc all day long," but if you're sitting next to that squad leader that you spent the last twelve months in a foxhole with. Um, and that guy saying you better not say nothing and, and really getting it down to the individual level, but not requiring them to be the, the mental health professionals. I, I agree. That's critical. The, the job of our military is to fight and win our nation's wars, but we can't do that effectively if we have this generational impact of, um, and you mentioned it before, not just traumatic stress reaction and things like that, but, uh, you know, all of it, the substance abuse and the depression, anxiety. And, and then when we get out of the military, this lack of purpose and meaning and, and, and what do I do with my life now that I'm no longer allowed to be what I wanted to be when I grew up? Um, and so it, there is this, this need to reach back into the military and make some changes because ultimately in the long run, it is a national defense issue is, is a diminishing number of uh, Americans are considering military service as an option because the prevalent uh, wisdom is, uh, you know, my, my son or daughter is going to come back damaged and deranged. Yeah. You know, I think there's something about that. And, 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 uh, you know, you're not going to have an effective professional military. If you have a professional military, that means that you go back for a third or a fourth tour, unless you sort of got your feet on the ground. And you and I have both been around uh, NCOs and officers who, who are, who are you know flaky and and uh, they they make bad decisions and a lot of a lot of that is because of untreated post traumatic stress while they're still in. Uh, I remember <laughs> watching a video once of Norman Sh uh, uh, Schwarzkopf go off. Uh, I mean, it just went off, right? You know, and 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 I looked at that and I said, that's a classic post traumatic stress uh, reaction. And of course, nobody you know thought about that during the Gulf War. That was early nineties. But that's what he was suffering from. And he's a combat veteran. 
And uh, it's if, without this kind of psychological grounding, uh, you're 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 not an effective fighting force. Like I said, it's a, it's a it's um, you got to balance it out. On the other hand, to just say that's up to the military, that's wrong. It's not just up to the military. After all, who sent them? Who you know? Who's responsible for that? Right, well, there's the, the responsibility of a nation. Right, you break it, you that, buy it. Yeah, and getting back in. See, the thing is, is that you come back. You know, if you go back to Fort where whatever, uh, you know, uh, you're still in in your military family, and everybody talks about that. But you're not in the nation's family. You're not in the civilian family. See, and and the military can't get you there no matter how much therapy you do well as long as you're staying staying inside the military family you're not going to get any help reintegrating into society let's face it the military is very much separated from society i mean they have their own everything px is you know their own way of being their own language i mean there's a major difference between the way it was when you were drafting people uh, you know, World War II, about, I don't know, three quarters of the military were drafted. So it's a big difference. No, you're exactly right. I, I recall, um, and, and I didn't know it then, right? You know, and this is the hindsight being 2020. Uh, but when I was uh, on Fort Carson, active duty, you know, off post was where I went to sleep and maybe caught a movie <laughs> once in a while, right? You know, but, but right, all of yeah. the... You know, all life happened. Um, you know, the, our Walmart was a PX, our grocery store was the commissary and, right. and everything happened there, you know. Um, in, but then you also talk about the, the difference with this professional military and perhaps even while being drafted. And, and I, I've heard this from a number of Vietnam veterans as they were growing up and approaching the mid sixties, they deliberately did not get married. They deliberately, didn't focus on building a family because they knew that they'd be drafted. Um, but now, and, and, you know, whatever the statistics are, and I've heard a number of them, but uh, a larger number of the military is, um, is married with families. As you and I were talking before this, um, um, I had two kids when I started to deploy or, you know, kept them all the way through. But, but I went, you know, as a, a father, um, you know, and a husband and, and the impact on the family, the military, if the military doesn't have responsibility to support the mental health of the soldier or the Marine, they definitely have even less of a responsibility to support the, the mental health of the family. And yet that's just as critical as making sure we have an effective fighting force. Absolutely. How many how many guys love the military but quit because they they just can't handle the family and the military at the same time? It's one of the big problems. Uh, you know, well, my wife just really hated it, and so I had to stop. I mean, I've heard that a lot. Well, that you're a lot of talent going out the door, you know. Right, and so and and you said that this is actually a question that you've had pretty often is is the psychological impact of combat and war not on the individual who fought in it but on the family members that that maybe share the life after or, or even shared the deployment with them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my 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 <laughs> there's two there's two stories about my oldest daughter. I have five kids, three girls and two boys, and uh, you know. One is my, my oldest daughter does not let me forget the fact that she went at one stretch in her life. She went to 12 schools in eight years because I'm running around doing my crazy, you know, post-traumatic stress, adrenaline stuff. Couldn't stay still long enough to leave her in school more than three or four months. And uh, the other one, which is a little more humorous, but is absolutely true. She looked at me about three or four Christmases ago. We're having dinner and she she says, Dad, and when, when one of your kids says, Dad, in that total voice, you go, oh, oh, now what's coming? She says, I just have to say something. Nobody shooting at you is not a good standard for a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cry over spilled milk. <laughs> That's right. I mean, stop whining. Nobody's shooting at you. I mean, that was my attitude, you know. <laughs> well, it's not really good to apply that to four or five-year-olds. I mean, they're not ready for it. Uh, but the the kids the kids learned to deal with me. I mean, they would actually take turns waking me up. I woke him up last time. It's not my turn. You wake him up because I I'd, I'd come out of bed, you know, jumped and uh, uh, but but one of the things is that nobody understood that it was not 
the dad wasn't crazy. I mean, that was the sort of the thing. Dad's crazy. I mean, as opposed to, well, dad is, has troubles from the war. The war has made him react this way. It's not, dad's not crazy. He's okay. But we just have to understand why he, if you start, here's a great one. My, my, again, the same daughter, she's, she's sort of more, more of a psychologist than, than the rest of us. She said, why was it that if I dropped the milk in front of you, oh, if I dropped the milk one time, you would just be fine. You'd, you'd say, let's just clean it up and be, be absolutely calm. And if I dropped it another time, you would go through the roof, scream, jump, scream at me. And I went, it's because if you dropped it in front of me, I was fine. If you dropped it behind me, it set me off because of I, I, I was right back into the combat situation and I wasn't thinking anymore. And if you could just tell the kids, dad isn't crazy. If you scare him or startle him, that triggers something in his brain, which has been changed because of combat. And this is the result. Don't do it. Or if you do it and he goes off, you, you can you can make a joke about it. It's not don't get so serious about it. Just understand it. And I mean, my favorite, my second wife, who, who didn't go through that horrible post-traumatic stress stuff that my first wife and I went through. I, came, I still have it. I came back about you know three or four years ago. And I had a bunch of groceries in my hand. And uh, my youngest daughter had put that little chain on the door that, you know, when you open the door, the chain stops it. Well, I came in and I was and I uh, shoved against the door because my hands were full with my with my shoulder and it the chain went bunk like that. That's all it took. I mean, the groceries were up in the air. I was on that door with my fist, wham, wham. You know, I mean, whoa. And then my wife Anne sticks her head through the crack of the door and smiles at me and she says, "Did you take your meds this morning?" <laughs> and it just it just took away the 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 shame. Because, I mean, when you, when you go off like that, you do stupid stuff like that. I mean, I feel ashamed of myself. I mean, I mean, and not to mention that my hands are bruised and bleeding, really stupid stuff. But she just had this sense of humor about it. You take your meds this morning. wasn't my fault. It was just a startle reaction. No, maybe. I don't know. And I had to pick up the groceries and life went on. As opposed to, you know, earlier, I mean, with people who are ignorant, I'm taking the kids and going to mother because, you know, you're dangerous. I'm not dangerous. I'm just startled. Yeah, and I think that's critical that the the family understands that as you're talking. And this is a a story that I've I've told before on the show, but but it's very appropriate here. Is uh, you know I I help take care of dinner on the weekends, and and uh, I would think I was there cooking. My son was getting a glass out of the cabinet, and there was a you know cookie sheet or something on it. You know, so a a plastic cup fell out and hit the the cookie sheet, and it was shh, right. And, oh, and, and yeah. right, you know, what I mean, and just yeah. just hearing that, and, and you likely have. And I jumped across the kitchen, and my son's sitting there looking at me with a cup in his hand, like confused. And my wife's in the other room. She was like, "What happened?" And he's like, uh, "Dad just jumped across the kitchen." And I shrugged and I said, "Hey, combat vet kid." It's part of the yeah. part of the ticket, right? I mean, this is this is part of the the price of admission to yeah. to, to what we did, and and being able to, in in at that point, I think he was maybe this was several years ago, so 14, 15 years old, and and he had you know grown up with it and, and kind of seen that, but just say to be able to say you know it's I'm, I was able to regulate myself back to baseline, and and like you said, was was uh, deescalated very quickly, but that stuff is still going to happen. And if the family isn't aware of it and understand it, then they're not going to be able to manage it quite as well. No, that's absolutely right. It's it's just edu just education and a sense of humor. It, I mean, those are two very simple things that I think would go go eighty percent of the way toward avoiding these horrible divorces and and you know a lot of drinking. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and uh, this has been great. Before we go, I, I really want to get in because I think we could talk for for probably several hours. <laughs> go all day here, um, I know. But uh, but you got another book uh, coming out, and and as this uh, as this show airs, it'll be out for about another month. Deep River, uh, and I was looking into it. Uh, not necessarily, it's not a combat story, um, no. but it but it has some kind of uh, transitional undertones appears to be um what it's like to be from one culture and emerging into another um mm -hmm. i'd like to hear a little bit about uh, the upcoming book deep river 
Yeah, great. It's uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's hardly any mention of war except that in, in the First World War. It's set in the uh, at the turn of the last century, and uh, it's about a, uh, it's a family saga about a woman and her brothers, and each of them has a different attitude toward life. We all carry attitudes toward life. Uh, like she, because of her childhood and certain traumas that happened to her, becomes an ardent communist and a, and a, a labor organizer, joins the IWW. Another brother just thinks that he, the way he's going to stave off, you know, fear of death and, and anxiety is he's going to get rich. He wants his own logging company. And another one goes to traditional religion. And, and one of the people that she f- uh, falls in love with is just wants his own fishing boat. I mean, it's the individual versus the collective. And it's and we, we, we for some reason, this culture can't understand that both are valuable. I mean, you know, it's like it's we need a conservative wing in our politics and we need a liberal wing in our politics, because if everybody was a liberal, we would do a lot of stupid stuff. And if everybody was a conservative, nothing would change. And so we need both. But we can't seem as a culture to get that through our head. And so I got this novel of these Finnish immigrants they are all from Finland and they have to learn how to become Americans and move into American society and get along get along with each other. There's still a family that still loves each other, but boy, do they have different attitudes about how to handle the world. And they argue. And uh, uh, But that doesn't destroy the bonds. That doesn't destroy the love that they have for each other. It makes it harder. So it's a, it's a novel. It's set in a logging camp, southwest Washington, at the turn of the century. And uh, it deals a lot with the environment. It deals a lot with um, there's a lot of sort of issues of, of religion and, and spirituality that, that I deal with. It's just my particular bent, and, uh, uh, and I'm hoping that it, hoping that it's a good book that people will will enjoy reading it. Yeah, I, I appreciate this idea where um, you know it, we're not just one trick ponies, right? You know, veterans can 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 leave the military and become authors or podcasters and, and, and definitely like the, the other two books, Matterhorn and then what it is like to go to war, um, being very similar. Um, but that's not all you are and that's not all you do. Just like, uh, you know, the infantrymen, you know, that's, that's not all they did. Um, that, uh, that you've got more stories inside you and they're not all about war. And I think even that is a good example for those who haven't fought to say, wait a minute, I thought you were the, the war guy. Yeah, I know. I I have joke with my my family. I said I said you know I'm the war guy. I mean you know three Marines pee on a dead Taliban. I got seven radio interviews about it. I mean you know it, it's just like uh, I was a war guy for because of those books that came out. I'm very happy they were successful books. And uh, man, I'm never going to complain about that. But you do. I mean, people love to put other people in categories. And, uh, you know, and what the category I got put in was war guy. You, know, you just nailed it. And uh, luckily, I, this book's going to be published. It's nothing to do with, you know, war and combat. Yeah. You know, I have a, a, um, a buddy of mine who, you know, is a Marine, as a matter of fact. Um, and, and he went to his therapist and his therapist said, um, well, I don't know if I can help you. He is, um, she's like, I'm, I'm not a, he fought in uh, Hellman and Fallujah. I think he did two times. <laughs> and, uh and she said, well, I don't think I can help you because I have no military background. And, and Jay said, I'm not coming to you um, as a veteran to talk about my war stuff. I'm coming to you as a human to talk about my human stuff. Really? Absolutely right. And again, a lot of, I mean, I think just for therapists out there that you are no less effective because you don't understand, quote unquote, what it's like to be in combat. Nobody understands what it's like to be in combat except the one guy who's talking to you. I mean, that the people who have been there understand it, but that's very, very few people. And what what they're looking for is someone to listen to them, someone who's safe to talk to, someone who reaches them as an individual. That has nothing to do with combat. I mean, what what therapists give to everybody, but certainly to veterans, is that ability to just sort of unburden your soul. And then have somebody who isn't doesn't have your particular you know peccadillos and irrationalities uh, point out paths to you that you might not have thought of, and uh, or maybe you know maybe your thinking's just a little confused on this issue, and that doesn't take any any understanding of combat. Uh, the the 
and and it goes two ways. I mean, veterans, combat veterans, and believe me, I'm one of them, have a kind of a disdain for people that haven't been there. You know, well, you know what, you know what the f I'm I'm talking about. You have no idea. That's that sort of arrogance. Like, you know, I've been there. I I've, I've seen the elephant. You haven't. And uh, uh, that gets in your way too. I mean, if you want to rejoin society, you got to get off of that high horse. Uh, it, you know, like I like I tell friends of mine who are are that way. I said, listen, if if all the women in the world uh, didn't want to talk to the men because they don't understand childbirth, I said we'd be in a real hum. <laughs> okay, we'll never understand childbirth. We can empathize. We can come close to it. We can read about it. We can, you know, there's a lot of ways we can get more attuned to it, but we'll never get it. Just the same way as that people will never get combat. That's no reason for you to not talk to these people, really. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's great, uh, and and I really appreciate you you taking the time today. Um, if if people wanted to pick up Deep River, as as I'm certain that they will. Um, or, uh, or Matterhorn or what it's like to go to war or anything like that? How can people find the books or maybe reach out to you or things they're, online? They're, they're all, you know, all the independent bookstores uh, have Deep River and Matterhorn uh, now. Uh, I mean, it's not Deep River. I mean, Matterhorn, what it's like to go to war. And Amazon carries it. And Barnes & Noble carries it. You can order it online. And Deep River will be published uh, July 2nd. But it's already in the pre-order state. So if you want to just pre-order it, you can just go to go online and pre-order it. Or you can go again to your independent bookstore if, if you have one that you like and just pre-order it and, and uh, it'll be there on July 2nd. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Carl. Well, it's been a pleasure. Nice to talk to you and uh, great questions. Thank you. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. I'm appreciative of how generous Carl was with his time and insight. As I mentioned in the show, it's great to hear how outspoken he is about therapy and mental health counseling. It tells me that the conversation around mental health and wellness is starting to change. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST137. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I am not your therapist. If something you heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. If something you heard makes you think of somebody who you think could hear it, then please share it with them. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
love you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.